The Recovery of Lost Joy. This is part two, and I'm continuing from last Sunday night. Things that take joy out of the Christian life, things that diminish its importance and vividness. I started this title last Sunday night, and I'm going to finish it tonight. Becoming accustomed to an incomplete response to the gospel. That's a problem. Becoming accustomed, getting used to an incomplete response to the gospel. And the text we're looking at, same as last Sunday night, Romans chapter 6, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Paul writes to these believers in Rome whom he's never met. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Because God is gracious and loving, sin can't be quite as serious when I know that he's merciful and forgiving. That's what he's saying. Is is that the way it works? By no means, Paul says. No, no, no. And then these words, do you not know? So it's a knowledge issue. It's an understanding issue. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So it's not the content just of having certain doctrines. The way you live your life, if you continue in sin, thinking, well, I'm under grace, you're just going to be bound, enslaved to sin. That's what's at stake here. Regardless of whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you can be enslaved in sin if that's how you tilt your life and your thoughts. 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. And notice, he doesn't just say you've become obedient, you become holier, you become nicer people. He says you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. So the, the reason they're in this problem, don't you know? That's what he says. It's an understanding problem. Then he says, you people here, your lives have been changed because you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So this is a series dealing with how spiritual joy diminishes and how frustration in the Christian life increases. And last Sunday night, we began with, I'm calling it the very first cause. I mean, arguably, you could put any number of things. I just chose this. The first cause in this series of making an inadequate start in the Christian life. I made the comment that the authentic Christian entry point is a combination of mind heart, and will. And last Sunday night, we just started looking into the kind of mind, the kind of understanding, the kind of deep knowing that must undergird any effective Christian conversion. Let me talk just a little bit more about this from the first point of last week's teaching. Here are some mistaken ideas. There are some people who think of the gospel merely as a message of forgiveness. 
And goodness knows we need forgiving. We're aware of our sin. We feel bad about certain things. And the gospel comes and says, you can be forgiven. You can be made clean. And we want to be made clean. We need to be made clean. But it's very easy at this point, they can say a few words of apology to Jesus, take their forgiveness, and assume that there, that's being born again. That's conversion. That's new life. They have what they wanted. They certainly want to avoid divine judgment. Who doesn't? They aren't thinking at this point about the lordship of Jesus. They aren't thinking of dying to self. What they want is forgiveness. And so that's what they assumed they came to Jesus for. And and what I want to say is, not that God doesn't forgive, but if if they see that as the whole thing, they're going to be miserable and they're going to be unstable all the way down the road in what they think genuine Christianity is. I think we need to stop and look at some things that are quickly assumed. How how does Jesus give me forgiveness? And I think the common understanding is the way the way you give somebody $5. They came, they said, I'm short five bucks. This is my need. Can you give it to me? And they take out $5 and they hand it. In other words, it's it's an external gift. Something Jesus, he just has this forgiveness and I need it. And so he's here, Doc. Take this forgiveness. The way you might give the teacher an apple. I don't suppose that happens much anymore. The truth, I think, is quite different. We receive forgiveness from Jesus by abiding in Jesus. Forgiving grace is a part of what it means to be in Christ. Forgiveness doesn't come from Jesus as a standalone gift. Maybe I can say it that way. This is what you wanted. You wanted forgiveness. There. I'll give you forgiveness. It doesn't come that way. Forgiveness comes from being in Christ. He is my righteousness. My cleansing. Everything that I receive from Jesus, according to Jesus, comes to me like the life of a vine goes into a branch. And forgiveness is the same thing. I I can't come and say, I just want forgiveness from Jesus and I'll decide whether I want to follow Jesus. Does everybody get what I'm saying? Forgiveness doesn't come as a standalone gift. Forgiveness, Forgiveness is precious beyond telling full of grace, full of mercy. But that's what I get from being in Christ. It's not a standalone gift. 
Forgiveness is one of the very first blessings that one receives from being united in faith to Christ. But it's not all that being united to Christ means. So that, there's, there's, another, there's another part of how a person can make an incomplete start. I can, I can, if I think of forgiveness that way, as a standalone gift that he just hands me, I can ask for forgiveness and knowingly continue in sin at the same time because I'll just get more forgiveness when I need it. That's what Paul says. No, no, you can't do that, Paul says. Here's another faulty understanding. Some people think of the gospel only as a message of morality or social justice in today's language. They want to do more good with their lives. They're tired of their own wickedness. They're looking for life on a higher, improved level. They hear of the golden rule. Uh, They hear the Sermon on the Mount. They imagine how wonderful this world would be if everyone would just live like that. This is a person who's attracted to the ethic of love and compassion. Jesus seems so loving. And so this person, tired of living beneath his or her potential, is drawn to the ethic of Jesus. If we would all just follow the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, imagine what this world would be like. This is what we need. That's not conversion. Has very little to do with genuine Christian conversion. And if that's the primary understanding that this person has of the gospel when he responds to Jesus, he's going to be miserable in his experience of Christianity because he never will live up to the example of Jesus. And he'll soon feel like a hypocrite. And he'll wonder why his resolve to keep to his new standards will fade so quickly. See, some people are just attracted to things mystical and religious. They they find something peaceful in steeples and stained glass windows. They're moved by ritual. Others love to be with their friends at church. They enjoy the warmth, the fellowship, because the world and the workplace, they're, they're alone. It's so uncaring and so cold. They like the candles at Christmas and the songs at Easter. And, and it's easy to assume there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I hope they exist here. But it's easy to confuse and assume that because they enjoy the atmosphere of church that they're embracing the lordship of Jesus. And that may or may not be the case. And they will always be miserable in the Christian life because, well, life isn't always that serene. And just wait. You won't believe what you're going to see in those great friends you have at church because they're a lot like you. (laughs) Paul wants people to know certain things for sure when they start the Christian life. It's a mistake to approach the Christian life short on sound understanding of biblical truth. That's why you'll notice. I think you'll notice Jesus never rushed people into following him. 
There's urgency, but not impulsiveness. Paul answers questions. Jesus reminds us of the cost, building a tower, fighting an enemy army, figure it out first, remember? Everything is laid out. Paul says there's a form of teaching, interesting word that he uses, a pattern of doctrine. It's in 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful verse. Paul says there's verbal truth. That's why he emphasizes not just sound thinking, but sound words. The pattern of sound words. Words words make general concepts of truth specific. Words make truth definable. There's a measurable content to the truth we need to embrace. It's this. It's not that. I mean, that's what words do. They explain and they limit meaning so that we don't mistake something for truth when it isn't. There's a pattern, he says, to Christian truth claims. He means there's a specific shape, a form. And Paul tells Timothy to make sure the people in his church have a good grasp on the the shape, the terrain, the content of what they need to grow in Christ. I suppose there might be some even here who think this is too mechanical, too intellectual, too heady. I said earlier that Christianity is an experience of mind, heart, and will. We're just looking at the first one, the mind. And the reason we're starting there is the Bible really won't give you another starting place. I was looking again at those words in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Are those in your notes? Okay. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, okay? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're not talking here about cold intellectualism. This is, this is truth that gets into the heart, into the mind in a transforming way, not just the way you would study uh, what life is, the temperature is on the far side of Venus. It's the impact of the truth. That leads to point number two. The truth must be embraced in the heart. I love, I love the story of Blaise Pascal, who after searching for truth in his diary, writes of his conversion, kneeling by his bed with an open Bible and on the evening of his conversion, in quotations, the one word, fire. Is that not great? Fire. Something that, something that caught, blazed, burned, made a difference. It does start with knowing in the mind, but it's not just knowing the fact I think a lot about Paul's words, haunting at times, 
Ephesians 6, 24, where he kind of signs off and says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So you see that verse in two parts. The last part of the verse describes the condition of the first part. Grace dwells in the heart where people love the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it means when people exhort us to put aside other things so we won't be diverted from giving all our attention we can to Jesus Christ, they aren't giving us a job. They're trying to open our eyes. When they caution us about idolatry the way First John does, they're not trying to lessen our joy. They're trying to deepen it. I am reading The Grace and Duty of Spiritual Mindedness by John Owen. I would love to recommend the brilliance of this book to everyone in the room, but I won't because if you buy this book and start reading it, you're going to hate me. These words, I'm thinking now, a knowing, a knowing in the mind that reaches the heart. I'm talking about everything being revealed, how spiritual, how in Christ, everything being revealed by the thinking of the mind as it bubbles up from the inner life. These words were written in 1681. They wrote, no short sentences in 1681. But you can follow this. Try and try. Wait, sit up straight, give your head a shake, and say, I'm going to get this. It's brilliant. So our Savior describes in Matthew 12, 35, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. First, the man is good. As he said before, make the tree good, or the fruit cannot be good. Verse 33. He is made so by grace in the change and renovation of his nature. For in ourselves, we are in every way evil. This good man hath a treasure in his heart. So all men have. As the next words are, the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart. And this is the great difference that is between men in this world. Every man has a treasure in his heart. That is, listen, that is a prevailing, inexhaustible principle of all his actings, thinking, and operations. But in some, this treasure is good. In others, it is evil. That is, the prevailing principle in the heart, which carries along with it its dispositions and inclinations, is in some good and gracious. In others, it is evil. Out of his good treasure, a good man bringeth forth good things. The first opening of it 
the first bringing of it forth is by these thoughts. The thoughts that rise out of the heart are of the same nature as the treasure that is in it. If the thoughts that naturally arise and spring up in us are for the most part vain, foolish, earthly, self-centered, then such is the treasure that is in our hearts, and such are we. But where the thoughts that thus naturally proceed from the treasure that is in the heart are spiritual and holy, it is an argument that we have become anew and spiritually minded. Is that not good? He says, look, look. When we're looking at new life and the evidence of new life and making a definite start, he says, look to where, look to the kind of thoughts that bubble up, the things you remember, the things you think about, the things you start to treasure. Unknowing. I still remember the day I read these searching words from a great ancient book. Sorry to do it twice. I love a book called The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ by Thomas Vincent. And he writes and says this. This isn't in your notes, is it? Oh, sweet. Jesus knows if he has their love, their desires will be chiefly after him. Their delights will be chiefly in him. Their hopes and expectations will be chiefly in him. Their hatred, fear, grief, Anger will be carried forth chiefly unto sin as it is offensive to him. He knows that love will engage and employ for him all the powers and faculties of their souls. Their thoughts will be brought into captivity and obedience unto him. Their understandings will be employed in seeking and finding out his truths. Their memories will be receptacles to retain them. Their consciences will be ready to accuse or excuse as his faithful deputies. Their wills will choose and refuse according to his direction and revealed pleasure. If they have much love for him, they will not think much of denying themselves, taking up his cross, following him wherever he leads. That's the kind of start the Holy Spirit wants to make in our hearts. It's different from just saying, I'm sorry I did some bad things. I'll try not to do them again. Three, almost done. Hang in there. The will. The will must be firmly devoted to obedience at all costs. But I hope you can see that this, I'm talking about the will, but I'm not just talking about raw willpower. The mind grasps the truth. The truth reaches the heart. It changes the affections. And that reaches the will in a different way than just a bunch of rules. His commandments, John says, his commandments aren't burdensome. But that's after the truth of God's grace and mercy have done their work in my heart. One last verse, Romans 6, 17. 
It's in our opening text. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin. These people are in trouble. They can't get out. You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Most of us, we would say the standard of teaching that was committed to you, given to you, I taught you. But Paul says, you were once slaves of sin and you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And he's laboring to make sure these readers in Rome understand that the mind is very important in the Christian life, but it's not just an intellectual concept. Do you see that phrase, the standard of truth in verse 17? The Greek word there is topos. Can you think of an English word? It's where we get the word type. An impression made by a blow. That's it. The life is taken up by the standard, the form, the type. Whole idea that the, the life is it becomes it becomes indented by what it knows. It takes the shape of that truth. So there's conversion. We need to make sure that there's a real start. It's a matter of mind and heart and will. And and it's just no wonder, Paul says. He's not he's not trying to make them miserable or doubt anything. He's just saying. Think this through. Think this through. That mind's going to be shaped by something. It's going to be shaped by something. It, it, you know, it's, it's going to be shaped by fellowship in God's house and study of God's word and time spent on our knees, or it's going to be shaped by, I mean, I keep thinking of things like Netflix and a host of other things. But it's going to be shaped. And the strongest way to live the Christian life. Make sure that both the beginning and as you move down the road into it, mind, heart, will. When we sing stuff like take my life and let it be, think of mind, heart, and will.